it's hard to imagine a more contemporary hymn suitable to celebrating the sacraments than that hymn is. Just outstanding, and thank you for singing it so well. This morning, we're breaking away from our studies in the Epistle of James and turning this morning to the Gospel of John. So, let's turn to John chapter 21, and we're reading verses 1 through 17. It's a fairly lengthy reading, uh, so please be patient with me. John chapter 21 at verse 1, and you'll find it on page 1687, 1687 of the church Bible. And John chapter 21 takes place immediately after, well, probably a couple of weeks after, in fact, Easter Sunday. And so, John 21 verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not too far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy word. 
If you regularly follow the very popular entertainment show called The Masked Singer, you, you will know that last Wednesday evening was a big night. The Masked Singer last Wednesday evening, when he was ultimately revealed, was so popular that the judges and the audience stood and applauded for several minutes. It was so impactful a performance, it was such a surprise that the Washington Post, the New York Times, and numerous multimedia organizations picked it up and ran with it Thursday morning. And they did so for this reason, because the masked singer, when he was revealed, was in fact 97-year-old Dick Van Dyke. And people were just overwhelmed with nostalgia. They reminisced about his life and work and his career. And of course, some of us who were around in the very late 60s remember the Dick Van Dyke show. We also remember, of course, that he played Bert in Mary Poppins, and he's a very popular entertainer. And before he finished last Wednesday evening, he sang supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And everyone, of course, joined in, and you can catch it on YouTube. And it was a very moving moment for everyone involved. And in fact, one of the judges who stood and was applauding with tears running down her eyes said to him towards the end of it all, she said, you are our childhood. And of course he is for many children at that age and stage growing up. And of course, nostalgia, reminiscing, thinking back with fond memories can and should be deeply moving. And this morning, as we gather around the Lord's table, we're not simply remembering. We don't simply come to be nostalgic and remind ourselves that at one time, God sent His Son into the world to die for our sin, that we might know Him and walk with Him. But we remember it today because it's as impactful today as when it first took place 2,000 years ago. And that's why I've come to this passage in John's gospel. And as John is writing his gospel, John writes in a manner that is a little different from the other gospel writers. Now, each of them have their own distinct style and language and approach. But with John, there is no wise men and no shepherds and no baby born in Bethlehem. There is no Herod. There is no angelic appearances. But John is distinctive in other ways. And throughout John's gospel, especially in the early part, you see Jesus interacting with a number of individuals almost in an interview situation where question and answers go back and forward and a conversation begins at this level and then gets deeper and deeper and deeper. We saw it first in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, the religious leader who came to Jesus at night. You see it again in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. You see it again in John chapter 5, the man who had been ill for 38 years was lying beside the pool, and he enters into a conversation with Jesus, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. 
You see it again in John chapter 9, the man born blind who gradually understood who Jesus was as they engage in conversation and questions go back and forward. And then perhaps the one that sticks in our mind is the story of Doubting Thomas when after Easter Sunday, he continued to doubt and said, unless I see the holes in his hands and the wound in his side, I will not believe. And then finally, here in chapter 21, when Peter is reinstated, you have conversation going back and forward between Jesus and Peter. And my question at this point is this. Why do we have John chapter 21? Why does John conclude his gospel, which is an absolutely spectacular gospel, with John chapter 21? In fact, John's gospel is so good, if I was P.L. Travis, the author of the Mary Poppins books, I would say that John 21 is best described in one word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which means extraordinarily good. And that's John's gospel. And the reason I ask, why do we have chapter 21 is this, because at the end of chapter 20, you have what seems to me as I read John's gospel, the perfect summary and conclusion. And it reads like this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name. New Testament scholars will tell you that many of John's favorite words, phrases, motifs, and themes used throughout his gospel is used in these verses right here. And I sometimes wonder if John, who carefully constructed and crafted his gospel, his original intent was to finish at the end of chapter 20. And so the question then becomes, what was so unmissable, extraordinarily good that he writes a PS at the end. And so you have John 21, where Jesus reinstates Peter. And I've often wondered what it would be like to sit down with John and ask him, John, what was the moment when you first realized who Jesus actually is? Was it the feeding of the 5,000? Was it walking on the Sea of Galilee? Was it when you heard Him teach? What was it? And I kind of want John to say, well, actually, it was late one night at the Beside the Sea of Tiberias, we had a long and busy day. We gathered round a small campfire. It was just the 12 of us. And we looked back over the activities of the day. And at that point, I realized who he was. Now, I'm not sure he would say that. But that's the kind of setting I'd want to hear John explain when he realized. 
He was the youngest of the disciples, probably his early 20s, mid-20s at uh, that stage. He wrote his gospel when he was an older man, his late 80s, early 90s, and he had all those years to think about what to say. And so, why do we have John 21? And I think we have it because of the value and significance of Peter's reinstatement. And notice what happens begins verse 1 afterwards, well, after Easter Sunday, and probably several weeks after. Jesus appeared to His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, let me pause right there. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee is the same body of water. It is 73 miles by road north of Jerusalem. You can go to it today. You can sail on it today. It is about 12.7 miles uh, in length, 3.6 miles wide, I think, six, maybe 6.3 miles wide, excuse me, and it's shaped like a hand, almost a little like that as you look at it. And why were they 70 plus miles north of Jerusalem? And why had they gone back to the fishing? Think of all that they had experienced over the last three years. Think of the miracles and the teaching and the absolute transformation in lives. Families turned upside down. Intimacy with God had become a living reality. Lives were being changed daily. And now they've gone back to the ordinary, the everyday, the mundane. Can you imagine the conversation those disciples were having night after night, thinking, what does the future hold? What does God have in mind for us? Is that it? Is it all over? And then they go out fishing, and Jesus calls, don't you have any fish? And of course, we know the rest of the story. And he says, throw your net over the right side of the boat and you will catch some. And it is John, in fact, and he describes himself here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a wonderful description of young John. The disciple whom Jesus loved. It says to him, it is the Lord. And they bring the fish ashore. And then a conversation begins. Not unlike so many other conversations that we have seen. And he says to him, do you love me? Now, that's an unsettling question, is it not? When a wife says to a husband, do you love me? He better have the right answer. Now, he's not asking, how is everyone doing? He's not asking about their families. He's not asking about what their plans for the future are. And I sometimes wonder how I would feel if I find myself in that kind of conversation with Christ. And he asked that simple, straightforward, fearless, searching question, do you love me? What would I say? what would you say? Would you be tempted to say, but Lord, I come to choir practice. I show up Sunday morning. Would you be tempted to say, I go to Sunday school. I'm in a men's Bible study. 
I do the best I can as an elder or a deacon. And then he would have every right to say, but that's not what I asked. What I asked, quite simply, was do you love me? It is one of those probing, unnerving, unsettling questions. Over the last 10, 15 years, I've noticed again and again when teenagers are on the phone with a parent before they hang up, they'll say, love you, and hang up. This is not that kind of conversation. This is not a casual goodbye before you get on a plane. It's not a casual goodbye before you head home for the day. Do you love me? And he doesn't only ask once. He asks a second time and a third time. Jesus understands Peter's threefold denial. When he needed a friend, when he needed someone he could make eye contact with and know he would be there for him, and three times, Peter denied him. And now a threefold confession is required for a threefold denial. Do you love me? And Jesus takes it deeper again and says, Do you love me more than these? What was he talking about? Was he talking about the scraps of fish that were left there on the coals, the bits of bread? Peter, do you love me more than you love fishing, more than running a small business as a local fisherman? Peter, would you be willing to give up everything and come and follow me once again? Do you love me more than these? How would you respond this morning? In a moment or two, we are going to take bread and juice and we remember. And we remember His body broken for us. We remember that at Calvary, all of history moved up to that sacred point and all of eternity flowed from it while history held its breath as the Son of God gave himself for our sin. That's what we remember. That's why it's every bit as relevant today as it first was. And Peter's beginning to feel the gravitas and the depth of his own betrayal. And in a morning like this, we likewise feel the same. We feel the sting and the shame and the embarrassment of our own sin. And so we come and we remember that He, God in all of His majesty and glory and wonder, was willing to give the life of His Son for us, for us. And His body was broken for us. Do you love me? And please notice this. Not once when he asks him the question, does he call him Peter? 
three times, Simon, son of John. Did Jesus forget that he changed his mind? Excuse me, changed his name? Did Jesus forget that in John chapter 1, he looks at him and says, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. Did it somehow slip his mind? No. Here he is, these three years later, looking back and doesn't call him Peter in order to remind him of the man he used to be. The man he was before Christ came into his life. The man he was before he was overwhelmed with the love and grace of God. The man he was before his heart and mind and soul was transformed and refreshed. And intimacy with God was now a living reality. And he reminded him of all of that. And is now saying, do you love me? And if this morning this table asks a series of questions, it also provides the answers that his body was broken for our sin, his blood shed for us, and the eternal promise that he will never leave us, walk away from us, abandon us, marginalize or minimize us or betray us as we would him when we sin. And we remember how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. This morning, when we take this bread and drink from this cup, we express to him our love and our deep eternal gratitude for all that he means to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of the visual imagery contained in this table this morning. Thank you that as we gather here, we do more than simply refresh fond memories. This is so much greater than nostalgia or reminiscing, but we're reminded of exactly the cost of Calvary. And so we ask as we participate in this bread and wine that you would reach in our deepest affections and enable us once again to be overwhelmed by your love, cleansed and renewed and refreshed. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.